Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things you need to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Munro. I'm a surgical registrar in the northeast of England and a clinical editor at the BMJ. In this episode, we'll be talking about listening up. We've heard why it's so important, but we're going to hear from Megan Reitz and John Higgins, who literally wrote the book on this. Their book is called Speak Up, the how-to guide to navigating the power and politics of conversations at work. To discuss my interview with them, I'm joined today by my friend and previous colleague, Divya Subramaniam. Divya, I'll start by letting you introduce yourself. Hi everyone, I'm Divya. Uh, I am, I was uh, Clara's old SHO when she was an F1. Um, I am currently a uh, National Clinical Policy Fellow at NHS England. Um, I used to, well, I trained uh, in general surgery up until the end of core surgical training and then I decided to pursue a largely non-clinical career. So Divya, we're going to be talking about um, listening up. Do you think you're a good listener? Do you know what? That's a really good question. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> long to, pause. I'm going to have to think. Yeah, long pause. I'm going to have to think for a bit. Um, I think I am a better listener now than I used to be. And I think it's thanks to my years of medical training. I hate to admit it, but that's what it is. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm the kind of listener I want to be, but um, I think I'm an average listener. Let's put it that way. I've got some work to do. <laughs> Why do you think, what makes you think that you're not always a good listener? So I think I'm an active listener in that I do the whole, you know, asking questions and, you know, engaging them and exploring, you know, whatever someone is saying a bit deeper. But a lot of times I do find my mind wandering. I don't want to intentionally, but it does. And and then you feel guilty. Um, So I think that's why, you know, I I, I don't know how I can keep myself engaged. Maybe that's just a me thing. Um, Mm, But yeah, I I can work on that definitely. Because I'll be like, what am I having for dinner? What's on Netflix? And you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm glad that I'm not the only person that does that. <laughs> okay, so aside from listening, do you think you're approachable, Divya? Do you think if somebody junior came to you and said, I've got a problem, do you think that they would even approach you? And if not, why not? Well, I think it depends on the day. So, okay. you know, if it's not a busy on call, absolutely. I mean, it's been so long since I've done a busy on call that I actually don't know, but... Um, I am definitely less approachable on a busy on call than mm. I would be on, you know, a day where you don't have many patients on your list, you've done your ward round and you're just chilling in the mess. Um, mm. So I think it's very context dependent. I'd like to be approachable all the time, but I'm pretty certain that's not the case. So I think now is a good time to segue into um, Megan and John talking about listening up and how we can be better at listening up and being approachable. That's coming up after this from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we're different. With no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members. 
we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not. Treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org slash UK. Now let's listen to Megan and John. Obviously, you've both done huge amounts of work um, in multiple organisations about speaking up and listening up. Um, Are there patterns or barriers you see to speaking up that exist that are different in healthcare um, to other organisations? So let's start with the, the way that they are really similar to every other industry that that I've worked in. There are some themes that we found in healthcare that exist in the financial and insurance sector that I've also done a lot of work in, uh, retail sector, pharmaceutical, you name it. Um, and one of those, one of the biggest themes is um, how we socially construct power obviously affects what gets said and who gets heard. Mm. So in any system, we label one another according to all manner of things, you know, our hierarchy, our gender, our department, our specialism, our appearance, our, you know, you name it, we label it. And um, those labels are constructed in, depending on the context, to convey different levels of status and authority. And that then affects uh, expectations and assumptions around who gets to speak up and who gets heard. And of course, it also affects our very real, you know, <laughs> perceptions of the consequences of speaking up mm. um, and listening up. And so one way that healthcare is, is very similar is that... Um, And one pattern that I am interested in is as you get more senior um, and hierarchy is obviously a is a big label across industries. But my goodness, you know, hierarchy (laughs) and labels are rife in the NHS for, you know, for for very good reason. You know, there are some very good reasons for that uh, and understandable reasons. But um, as we get more senior, as as these labels and titles tend to get applied to us, we risk uh, going into what we call an, an optimism bubble, um, mm. which actually when we're being a bit mischievous, we call kind of basically delusion bubble. Um, you know, you think you're approachable, you think you're more approachable than you mm. are, you think people are speaking up more than they are, 
essentially, in a nutshell, you don't do the work that actually you really need to, to help people to feel safe to speak up, because you don't even realise you have to do the work. You know, what is distinctive about work in um, the NHS is the emotional charge. Uh, and it is the, that can so often get disappeared. And I'm just thinking of one particular story, which uh, a, a very long-standing colleague from years ago, which I sort of helped him write up, and he was working with a, a premature baby unit of um, one of the sort of the big hospitals. And of course, um, you know, when young babies die, um, there is no good story. There is, it is extremely mm. traumatic for everybody. And in his particular case, he'd been called in because they were a bit worried that the, uh, the meetings between the, um, the nurses and the doctors on the Friday apparently were a bit, bit violent. Chairs were being thrown around. And they thought, because he came from a, a business school, that what they needed was some agenda management. Um, <laughs> luckily, he was a, a Tavi-trained um, guy by background. Uh, and he actually identified this was the only place where it was safe for mm. people to let rip about what they'd seen. Mm. And I'm just very aware at the moment in terms of that emotional safety. safety. And again, it's distinctive to the NHSs. I'm coaching um, someone who works in the intensive care area at the moment. As you can imagine, over the last 18 months, that's been you know, a bundle of laughs. Mm. Um, and they called me up at the, in the middle of the, the second peak to say, is it OK that I take myself off into the linen cupboard to cry on a Tuesday afternoon? Because I don't want people to see me breaking because they were mm. one of the more senior and experienced people and it was the idea of you know this was way beyond my competence but it was the idea this was a coping strategy for them and what is distinctive is that a lot of the you know the good rational approaches into how to listen and all these sorts of things strips away the emotional charge that is the bread and butter of an awful lot of the, the context that uh, people like yourself are working in mm. do you yeah thank you um that emotional charge that you talk about john do you think that there's a place for it when we're speaking up about things or when we're inviting people to listen up or do you think we should be taking that out of those those conversations gosh no well I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of bringing emotion back in um mm. i have a I, I think there is nothing more awful than somebody um bottling things up and just hearing a, a, a series of platitudinous statements with all meaning stripped of them. If one accepts that, you know, communication, you know, there's a digital and an analog bit to it. And because of an over-focus on the digital, you know, just give me the facts. It's the idea that the facts arrive with the intensity of the feeling. And I, you know, in a lot of our work, which is looking at how out of touch senior groups get in all organizations, it's because the data they're presented with is stripped of the emotional data. Uh, and this is why, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of one of the guys we, we worked with was worked with the, the financial crash back in 2008-9. And again, the only people who believed the data that was coming out about why the banks were making so much money were the most senior people. And because according to the, you know, the, the, the neutral, the emotionally objective reports they were getting, everything was fine and dandy. If you went to talk to any of the traders on the floor, they knew this was a crock of what's it. And, you know, that that sense of this is a crock was getting lost. Mm. As somebody who's um, 
very slowly becoming more senior um, in a hospital setting, in a healthcare setting. Um, what sort of things can I personally or, you know, our listeners do to try and be more available um, for people to to speak up or, you know, what can I do to listen up better um, that doesn't completely take away my power um, but maybe curtails it enough that people feel able to have those conversations. So, you know, again, how you show up affects others voice Mm. so you know I mean it may be a bit old hat to say this but it is you have to be in a place where you can show up and listen and uh, and there is a very very real need to 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 look after yourself to pay attention to how you are holding the emotional content of of what you get to deal with every day so how do you make sure that you can you have a a a support or a group or how do you enable yourself to show up in a way that's healthy and able to listen to others so that was kind of one of the first things that occurred to me and the second thing is um I don't know that it's about you know curtailing power I think it's about firstly can you be aware as you become more senior, can you be aware of the impact that that has on others around you? And, you know, I think many of us feel, you know, it's a bit like getting older, isn't it? I I mean, I still feel like I'm, you know, 18. Um, But, you know, uh, and then I kind of look in the mirror and go, oh, blimey, that's how other people see me. And it's, it's the same as we get more senior, you know, we get these senior labels, but inside we kind of sort of feel like the same person, but we have to have the ability to see how other people uh, see us. Even if inside, of course, you know, we don't feel very powerful. (laughs) And in fact, many senior people don't feel powerful. That's why they forget that other people think that they are, because inside, Mm. you know, they're not experiencing it like that. You've got to want to listen. So one of the key bits of our data that we found is that, you know, by and large, people are more interested in themselves and their self-narrative than the narrative of others. And I think you can do so much damage by thinking, oh, I meant to listen to this person. I'm going to put my listening face on. I'm going to put my head at an angle of whatever many degrees, and I'm going to nod at every three seconds. That, <laughs> If you want to destroy a relationship, that's the way to do it, because people can pick up a fake listener mm. a mile away. The other thing that I would bear in mind is that if you want to go, if you want someone to speak to you, and as you get more senior, it's Think about where they are going to be comfortable speaking to you rather than where you're going to be comfortable. Uh, One Mm. of our sort of early articles for the Harvard Business Review was around, you know, my door is always open and how that is an unhelpful phrase because it's saying, first of all, I'm not that interested in you because you've got to come to my territory. Oh, and by the way, when you come to the territory of a senior other, your anxiety levels peak up. So you're unlikely to be that articulate. So it's this whole thing of, you know, you know, we, we interviewed a, a lay Benedictine monk who ran a, um, a city headhunter firm, which is a collision of labels, which I just love. But his whole thing was, you know, always go to where the youngest monk in the monastery will be most comfortable. 
So it's the idea if you're speaking to a more junior member of your team, where are they going to feel safest, most comfortable, even if you're feeling a bit awkward? Because mm -hmm. one, it's a, it, that's your way that you dial down your power difference. And there was one other thing I just wanted to say is that the way you frame that question is, you know, how do I, you know, you know, sort of set my power to one side or something. And I think the whole point is that power is experienced relationally. It exists between two people at the same time. You do not own the power of the who's listening, who's speaking. This is negotiated between the two of you. So it's paying attention to the relationship rather than just to inward focus what do i do it's what do can we do together i like that i'm definitely going to reframe that a bit better next time <laughs> one of the really interesting things that they said and it links back to what you were saying before divya about whether you think you're approachable or not um was this idea of how we structure power um and obviously Megan talks about this being present in lots of different organisations. Um, but obviously we're talking about it in the context of clinical medicine, the NHS. Um, we have a hierarchy in the NHS, you know, let's say consultant, registrar, SHO, F1 from top to bottom. But then you've got all the other layers as well, which I think we bring our own values to or we label people and kind of slot them into those power levels do you know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely gender plays a huge role absolutely huge role especially in surgery i think personally um it's not overt it's very subtle very implicit but it is there um and i think when we um when i listened to megan clip i think she mentioned ethnicity as well mm. i'm gonna I'm going to challenge that a bit in the context of the NHS. I do think the mm. it doesn't play as big a role in the NHS, not in my experience anyway. I speak as someone who's a minority, minority ethnic woman. Um, I definitely think the gender thing was um, more obvious in terms of how the power was structured. If you ask me personally, I didn't, mm. yeah. So I didn't feel less powerful than a white colleague for example but I definitely felt maybe not less powerful but perhaps at a disadvantage to a male colleague for example it I just immediately thought it, it might not be true and the consultants might not even think that way but I immediately thought that I was going to be perceived as the inferior person to the boy um but that's and that's that's interesting because that take like you know, even if that is your perception, That's I guess you are less, you're, you're less likely to speak up because yeah. you think they're going to, you know, not believe me or they're going to think what I say is, you know, not relevant. Do you think that that, you know, how much do you think that that is about what you see at the top of the tree or the top of the hierarchy? Like who, who has your labels? You know, is that is that where you get that from, do you think? Oh God, I think it's been years of conditioning since I was a kid. Um, mm. So I think that's, I think that's more personal. But I think also it, it is what you observe in sort of the higher rankings. Of, I, I can only speak to surgery, I think, more than, you know, any other specialty. But, you, you know, you see mostly men up there. You see the, 
you know, it's just easier for boys to have a conversation with a consultant about football, for example, because you don't know anything. I mean, mm. I remember thinking one day as a house officer, man, I need to go back and read the sports pages because I need to have a conversation with these guys. Um, and, you know, it's things like that. I think it's really subconscious. I don't really know how I picked it up, but mm. it's there. I think it's just been shoved at me from every direction that it's just over there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you say that you feel like it's your gender more than your ethnicity or your background. And I wonder how much of that you can ever really say is one thing or the other because of the degree of intersectionality, um, you know, that we all we yeah. all have in various sense, like socioeconomic group. When I was listening to Megan's clip, I felt that that bit wasn't really, you know, she kind of talked about making the other person feel sort of safe and, you know, going to, for example, their environment where they were likely to be more um, candid, etc. I did mm. wonder... Um, you know, uh, if people, for example, thought about how the other person, or you know, when you're you're the one listening, um, how the other person perceived not just you, because that was a lot of what the conversation was about, and mm. you know um, how scary you may be, but how they perceived themselves. Mm. And I think as a leader, and if you're listening up, you're going to have to be acutely aware of that. Not that, that kind of feeds back into what John said then about, you know, you take how somebody already feels about themselves. Maybe they already feel like they're in a minority, like people aren't going to listen to them. Then you take a really emotional, char- emotionally charged situation because most of the time when we're speaking up about stuff, we're not like okay, I've had a really lovely day and I've really reflected and I've done my yoga and my well-being. Let me speak up about this terrible thing that I saw. You're going you're going to that conversation feeling, A, on the back foot because of your background or the colour of your skin or your gender. Uh, and then you're also going to that conversation with this huge emotional charge as well. And, you know, I think if I'm then listening to that person telling me something that they're worried about, I think just getting in that mindset, you know, if you're the person sat in the office who's been sat there all day, you know, you've had your coffee, you've had your lunch, you're feeling pretty chilled and somebody comes to you who's super stressed and this terrible thing's happened and they have all this, that is the two of you, there's a power imbalance there even in between that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And just to go back to what you said earlier about, you know, um, uh, just just to add to what you said earlier about people being, you know, uh, perceiving themselves as different because of their kind of their skin or background or um, gender, nationality, whatever. I think there's also I think people forget about diversity of thought as well. So, for example, if mm. you have a very different, I, I, and I think that plays into the power imbalance as well because if you have a very different opinion, I don't know if you're a Trumpian and everyone else isn't, for example. Um, you might still feel like an outsider anyway, and you might feel like, well, no one's mm. going to take you seriously. Um, so I think that, I think we shouldn't forget that as well. But yeah, either way, um, you know, all of these things, I completely agree, would make you feel like there is, there's, there is a power imbalance. I, I really liked John's comment, um, and I think you've already sort of mentioned it. Um, but when he talks about the ex-Buddhist monk 
And he says, always go to where the youngest monk in the monastery feels comfortable. I love that. I think that's really, really important because I think that whole thing about an office, you know, you're, that's four walls with the door shut and all of that power imbalance is trapped in those four walls. That is not a comfortable situation for that person who wants to wants to speak up and maybe already feels not quite great about it. Um, also, they're usually sitting what, across a desk from you, which is the first thing you get told in med school not to do. There yeah, you are. Never look over the desk. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Which part of the monastery do you feel most comfortable in? Oh, definitely where the youngest monk is. I don't even know if I'd qualify as a monk, so, you know, there you go. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, if I were, I'd be where the, um, yeah, the runt of the litter was. The runt of the litter? <laughs> yeah. I really enjoy that, listening back to that clip, I, I enjoy it even more every time I hear it, that um, John picked up on my uh, narcissism because I always go back to what can I do about this? And actually his framing of what can we do about this? This is a team effort. You know, mm. listening up isn't one person needs to be better at listening up. One person needs to be better at speaking up. This is a a kind of a whole thing. Mm. It's not one person. Um, so I think on that note, um, we shall listen to the second half of my interview with John and Megan. When I was uh, reading your piece in BMJ Leader, um, you talk about advantage blindness of leaders. Um, And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because I don't think I'd quite framed thinking about listening up or speaking up in that way before. Can you, just for our listeners' benefit, explain a little bit about what you mean by advantage blindness? The way I normally... Uh, explain it is is first to say look we label one another all the time so as people are even listening to this probably the listener has labeled me as you know female um british uh professor and when we have labels that convey status and authority and look I, you know i still i do a lot of work with with senior executive teams particularly in in Europe and the US and many of them are have the labels you know chief executive or director um white male for example and those are three titles and labels that in many places convey status and authority and when you have those labels and any labels of advantage uh it's actually very hard to see them it's not until we don't have those labels that we can kind of look at them and go, my goodness me, those labels make a difference around here as to whether you're heard. Mm. And that's advantage blindness. And the reason why that's a problem, of course, is that as we are sitting in a situation of advantage blindness, we don't realise that there's a problem. And we might think to ourselves, well, people can speak up around here. I can speak up, no problem. People listen when I speak up, therefore, we all can speak up. Therefore, I don't need to do any extra work to help others to voice. And that work that you talk about, what form does that work take? 
So I'll start, John, and then pass over to you. Um, (laughs) So the work is on enabling the other to feel safe to speak. And uh, and that involves something that we spoke about earlier on, which is around an appreciation of power difference. And, uh, you know, John was saying things around, you know, getting onto their territory in their environment. Where are they going to feel safest um, to be able to speak up? So that's that's the kind of work that I'm referring to. And it's also, you know, how do you, the work is around the words, the invitation, the body language. Um, The work is around how do you respond when somebody does speak up, even if they haven't spoken up very skillfully, perhaps. You know, noticing, being aware that your response then defines whether that person's going to speak up again and probably whether their colleagues do. So the work is the work of awareness and adaptability and changing some of your perhaps autopilot habits around communication in order to help the other person uh, to feel safe. And, and finally, I would say, you know, another piece of work which keeps on cropping up at the moment is the work is going back to people that have spoken up in order to tell them what's happened with what they've said. Um, I've worked with a couple of organisations just recently where there is a huge problem because the story in people's minds is really the likelihood that you're ignored is huge. And Mm. therefore, what is the point? So there is a lot of leadership work involved in not, you know, obviously not necessarily acting on everything that we hear because we have to discern there. But but there is a feedback loop. And if that feedback loop is uh, isn't closed, it doesn't take long for people to just give up. And then you're then Mm. you're in quite a problem to you know, it's quite a problem to dig yourself out of that situation. Mm. Thank you. Just like to be on that one. And, you know, in terms of digging yourself out of that situation, the whole point is you will get it wrong. And this thing is how you recover is so important and it it is this thing of notice when you've been short with someone notice when you've you you've you've been you people have met your stressed response and you haven't been at your best because you know it's very easy to talk about you know how we get it right all the times where we you know we slept well we we you know we we're sort of just absolutely zen like but the point is that there maybe i mean you're probably different to me but you know my my capacity to cock up is is quite legion and so it is the question of having put my foot in it right now i need to recover and the first point is to say i put my foot in it or i was short and it's not to use a sort of political i'm terribly sorry i have you know you seem to have been offended by what i said it's to actually own your authoring of the discomfort so that's the first thing. And then the other thing I want to say is, is actually there's, there's sometimes exploring your autopilot um, responses requires finding someone you can have the embarrassing conversation with. So I have a, a very good uh, friend. He goes back to school days um, and he's terribly high flying in one of the some sort of uh, US consultancy firm. And his his firm was terribly wrapped up in the sort of got wrapped up in the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was all to do with, you know, there was a corporate language to be used around it. And he called me up and he said, you know, 
you you know me, John. Um, you know, we shared the background. We went to a, a, an all white little school down in the West Country. Um, and we were brought up with, quite frankly, some fairly racist attitudes. And it's this whole thing of he knows that his capacity to misspeak is enormous. Mm. And it's this whole thing he, you know, sought me out so that we could explore being clumsy together. And it's this whole thing of who can you explore your clumsiness with and finding that person because you are going to be. And the problem is, if you stick to the overpolished self the whole time, you're going to believe your own fantasy that you are somehow better than the rest of us. So I, um, we've been talking a lot about uh, how to be better at listening up. Um, and I know that there's a huge, you know, onus and responsibility on people to be better at that. If I'm now in the hospital and I've seen something that I think, oh, we, we shouldn't probably be doing that. I, I should probably speak to someone about that. And I want to speak up about it. Um, and the person I'm speaking up to perhaps has not listened to this podcast or has not um, <laughs> read any of your papers or books or work. Um, Surely is not. There any... <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> is there any way that uh, I, as the person that's doing the speaking up, can make that encounter more powerful myself um, without the other person having done all of that work beforehand? Um, yes. <laughs> <There's>, uh, <laughs> well, I'll get, I'll get really pragmatic and practical here. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> we, we have a little tool a little framework that you will have come across in other guises and it's the five w's um which is quite helpful to have in your back pocket when you need to speak up uh, and it stands for who why what where and when um so the who is about who do i need to hear me and who do i need to speak to and that might first of all they, they might be different people you know, you mm. might need your boss to hear you, but actually it's not going very well. So perhaps you need to speak to somebody that really influences your boss. So that and the who is also about, you know, do I speak up? Maybe it's not been going well when I'm a lone voice here. So I need to maybe collate, you know, collectively speak up with others. So that's around who uh, the why is around the positive intent you know, and when we speak up, particularly if it's an emotional area or particularly if we run off our feet and we're really tired, um, we don't necessarily speak up with our you know, ultimate positive intent in mind. Uh, but if we can speak up knowing our why and also if we speak up with an intent, ideally, that's shared with the other person, that can mean it can be heard uh, even better. There's the what of the language we use, you know, the, what we sometimes call the trigger words, the, the words that we use that we know that they'll pay attention to and the words that we use that we know we should avoid because it will tune them out. And what body language do we use? You know, so how do we convey the message? And then where and when this, this environment, the environment matters um, where is this person most likely to be able to hear me? You know, is it the beginning of Monday morning? Is it on a Zoom call or is it face to face? Is it formal or is it informal? Is it with other people or is it by ourselves? 
you know, a lot of these are, are, are good questions to ask, you know, not just all the time when we speak up, obviously, but if there's something particularly important to speak up about, it can be really helpful to do that. And it can also be very helpful to uh, seek support, you know, um, rehearse, um, uh, have somebody alongside us that can listen to us and give us a few pointers as well. And, and we don't do that. We hardly ever do that, you know, and, and, and that is usually a, a very useful way to be able to be heard better when the time comes. I just the, the rehearse thing I just particularly love because I remember talking to a, we interviewed a, a Royal Shakespeare theatre director who, who does work in organisational spheres and he was bemused that people go into these really you know you know career pivotal uh, conversations without rehearsing because of course if you come from the, the, the theatrical tradition of course you rehearse before you do an important speech. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I don't think I've ever done that thing where I've stood in front of the mirror and had a conversation with myself, but it probably would be really helpful. <laughs> or, or, with somebody, or with somebody else in front yes. of the mirror or, you know, and or with somebody that can, that may, you know, and, and as we've said, you know, speaking up is a, is a political act. And, and if you're, particularly if you're unsure of the politics of it, um, if you could have somebody in your network that, that has that political savviness or astuteness in that environment, uh, that, can be, that can be quite helpful. I'm going to start by picking up on advantage blindness. And um, I feel like there's a lot to say about advantage blindness. Um, so before... I jump in with my many thoughts that I've had about this. Um, I'm interested to know what your initial feelings were when you when you listened to this. So I think the first thing that came to mind when um, he mentioned advantage blindness was, um, you know, when you're just a little bit more senior and you know a little bit more than, say, your house officer. I mean, I don't know if it, that is the kind of advantage blindness he's referring to, but then your house officer fresh out of medical school comes to you and they're like, oh, what do I do? What is the dose of, I don't know, this antibiotic? And you go, ah, do you not even know that? And I think, <laughs> and you know what? I don't think I've really said that to a junior, but apparently my face doesn't lie and I'll put my hand up and say it doesn't. So I apologize if anyone's listening and I've done that to them, it, you know, it was not intentional, but you know, I, and I never thought about it until he said that. And I was like, my God, that is what I did. Um, so that was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, about yeah. we, we talked about it at the beginning of this uh, conversation before we started recording, <laughs> but you were my SHO. And I remember thinking, Divya knows everything. She is so senior. She is the scariest person because she's more senior than me. You did not. And now... <laughs> But now I'm the registrar. I feel the same as I did. You know, yeah. as Megan says, I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, my face is older now and I've got a badge that says I'm a registrar. But I feel like I did it an F, you know, as, as an F1. But I do that too. I think we all do it. It's that protective mechanism of being like, I know a little bit more than you. So, and I have a badge that says I'm more senior than you. So I'm going to make sure you know it by... But also, I think, I don't think that's what I was 
getting it. It's almost like I just forgot that I didn't know that mm. because I, like you said, you feel exactly the same. I felt exactly the same. So I just acted as if, you know, I graduated from med school knowing everything I did, which I didn't. Um, and I think I was completely blind to the fact that I had, you know, the advantage of knowledge, I guess. So I think that's what I was guessing at. I guess some of it is about, you know, and John phrases it really nicely. You find that person that you can be really mm. honest with to explore your clumsiness. And I think one of the things I wrote down that he said that was so so ran true to me is if you stick to this really polished version of yourself and you know we all do it we're all actors in the game of the hospital aren't we you know you go to work and you're like I am a doctor now and I'm putting on my doctor hat and I know these things actually if you just stick to that polished version of yourself um you believe your own fantasy after a while and you don't explore the things that you maybe are doing that mean that other people lose power and can't speak up and therefore you can't listen up because if you're not making yourself in a position that they can speak up how on earth can you listen agreed I think one of the things I do do in that sense um is that but I do this all the time anyway and it wasn't it wasn't with the intention of allowing it wasn't with the intention of listening up I'd be honest I'll be honest but I do do it quite a bit which is you know if someone cocks up just to make them feel better I'll be like may I did that yesterday or you know if 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 my junior says something like that I'll be like well you know what I gave someone so much fluid one day they nearly died of gonglioedema so don't you worry so I do I do tend to do that so I don't know if that kind of helps with you know listening up um but I hope that it makes me more approachable and less of a senior, fantastical, scary person because I'm just, you know, as fallible as they are. I think um, the conversations that I've had with Bill Kirkup in the other episodes, um, we've talked a lot about uh, vulnerability Mm. and admitting that you've made a mistake Um, instead of, you know, kind of acting exactly as you say like you're the invincible senior and you never do anything wrong and I wonder if you know showing your vulnerability and it doing exactly what you just said makes you more relatable and also opens that arena opens that fora for talking about you know and this all goes back to blame culture and psychological safety you know if if you're able to listen up and you're able to let people speak up because they feel like oh she makes it or he makes a mistake too I'm not the only one yeah. I imagine that the workplace is going to be much more psychologically safe if you feel like you're able to do that absolutely and I have to say that I think our generation are far better at doing that mm. you know no disrespect to the bosses and I think there have been times the bosses have pulled out something out of their hats that, you know, just blown my mind when they're like, don't you worry, you know, I did a lump puncture and someone herniated and died and you're like, oh my God. Um, but, um, yeah, I do think that we are more kind of aware of the pressures that we went through as juniors and we don't think of it as a rite of passage. And mm. so we are, I think, kind not kinder, um, I think, our bosses are kind to us in a way, but um, we are more empathetic, I guess, with what our juniors are going through. Compassionate. Compassionate, absolutely. (laughs) 
I'm desperately trying to, you can just tell I'm desperately trying to link back to all the other episodes we've done. But I, you know, yeah. the more I have these conversations with people, the more I kind of see how all of this stuff is linked, you know, if you're compassionate, if you can be vulnerable, if you can say you've made a mistake, people will speak up, you will be able to listen up. You can't remove your labels, I don't think, um, going back to the whole label and power structure. But yeah. I do think that, I guess you can mitigate what those labels bring to the conversation I think there was one other thing that John mentioned um and I don't know if this is something in your sort of leadership with a capital L experience Divya that you've talked about but this whole idea of um you know actually it wasn't John it was when Megan spoke about um the five W's and she talks about who you know where when and the who bit, I think, is really interesting because I think we probably do this subconsciously, but none of us have been formally trained to do it. You kind of know who you're meant to go and speak to about the thing that you want to speak to them about. But perhaps the right person isn't that person at the top of the tree. And this idea of how do you work out where the power is? How do you work out who is going to listen to you, but who is also going to speak to the power? Yeah. How do you do that? How do you work that out when you enter a kind of any organisation, NHS or otherwise? I think most of us um, usually tend to have a mentor, right? Or someone who is kind of slightly more senior than you, um, who is still approachable. So, I don't know. Um, so, or, you know, uh, for example, a consultant who's just a bit more down with the kids, but um, a bit... Uh, <laughs> You know, you, you have that one consultant that will come into the genius rooms and hang out with you and have a chat and, yeah. you know, you're on first name basis and then they go home. And- I think there are also the, like the secret power keepers in organized, like, well, I, I always knew that on one ward that I worked in that it was the ward clerk who you would ask. If you wanted to get anything yeah. done, always ask the ward clerk. You know, yes, they're not top of the hierarchical tree, but they are the boss on that ward. And I think I try and do that a bit more actively now. Yeah. But kind of searching out for that power and working out who I need to talk to yeah. to get stuff done or when I have a concern. Because sometimes it's a domino effect. And yeah, okay, you don't go and speak to the person who's technically at the top of the tree or the right person to speak to. But if you speak to someone else, it'll kind of all get sifted up Absolutely. the right way. I think it's a very overused word now, but it is the right word. You just need an ally, don't you? Basically. Yeah. So that probably wraps us up for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Divya, especially all the way from Malaysia in a different time zone. You're welcome. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. Next time, we'll be looking at blame and talking about why it's a natural instinct, but perhaps a destructive one to assign blame when something goes wrong in the hospital context. That'll be with you in a fortnight's time, so make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Last thing to do is say thank you to our guests, Megan Reitz and John Higgins. Bye for now.